0: Oh, dear church, it is good to be with you. I don't know if it's just me this morning, but um, just filled with joy driving here. I don't know if it's just the sun that hits the new leaves on the trees, or it's like that kind of cool anticipation that it's going to be a hot day. Um, We have moved from not having winter to not having spring to whatever we're having (laughs) currently. So... All of it we thank the Lord for. And here we are at the conclusion of the Ten Commandments. What a wonderful couple weeks this has been. Um, And we're just in chapter 5. Me and Matthew were giggling about that. It's like, here we are in April. Chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. We'll We'll be done. We'll be done. Maybe this year. One of the titans of church history... His name is Augustine of Hippo, often referred to as St. Augustine. And you might hear some people refer to him as Augustine. They say his name wrong, but they're referring to the same man. And this, this theologian, Augustine, lived in the fourth and fifth centuries. And it's not at all an exaggeration to say that he is the most important theologian on this side of the New Testament. He lived a life of sinful passion until the age of 31, when the Lord miraculously saved him and again proceeded to write and to think. The most impactful writings of the nature of our faith since we've seen uh, and since the birth of the church. But not only was he a well known theologian writing and responding to questions and controversies on the world stage. I mean just get that. We have pastors that that blog and they might know you in the city or they might know you in particular denominations. Augustine was writing across the world. But not only was he this well-known theologian, my favorite part of Augustine was that he was a local church pastor. Augustine pastored a small church in a small town of Hippo in present day Algeria. So, Krugers, be encouraged. The most prominent theologian to have ever existed is from Africa. And the, <laughs> amen, amen. And, he, and the area that he pastored was a little bit like the Wild West small town pastor. Global stage, and he was defending the gospel and preaching the gospel, and there were all kinds of false gospel preaching churches around him. Uh, in in a comical story, one such church that was teaching a false gospel actually it was more popular than Augustine's, which is funny when you read in church history. History tells and gives the truth of the matter. And so this false teaching church was much larger than Augustine's. And what they would do is they would wait till Augustine was preaching his sermon and then they would start singing right next to his church. <laughs> kind of sounds like some churches in the deep south that I grew up in. But he would faithfully preach. And he preached six to 12 times a week. He would preach early in the morning, 5 a.m. to his congregants before they went to work. What a perspective this gives for the American church where programs and comfortable spirituality are the case. Waking up at five, I don't want to preach at 5 a.m. I'm not going to, be, don't, don't come here at 5 a.m. I'm not preaching a sermon. But what a perspective. All this to say, Augustine was a heavyweight, both in theology and in that nitty-gritty, dirt-under-your-fingernails kind of pastoring that we see described in the New Testament. And he talks about the Ten Commandments. And how did he summarize the Ten Commandments, this cornerstone of theology, of ethics, and culture for God's people? He said this, love God and do whatever you want. Profound. Love God and do whatever you want. This morning's text can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. This is God's word kindly addressing us this morning. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So here we are, concluding our time in the Ten Commandments in one sense, though for the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, I I hope you're going to catch it, the Ten Commandments are going to be peeping their head around the corner. They're going to be alluded to. They're going to be practically applied and illustrated through the rest of our time in this wonderful book. And we're in the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, the second part of the second, second uh, of the ten Commandments, and we 're working what appears to be from greater to lesser obey your parents don 't murder people don 't commit adultery don 't steal don 't lie and now covet and it seems as though murder and adultery those stand head and shoulder above coveting because you 'd be punished under Mosaic law for murder or for adultery, but for coveting. There's, there's, not, there's not a punishment for that. So how is it connected? What are we to say about this? First, even though murder and adultery seem to be that, coveting and covetousness do stand distinctly different from the other ones. And that's my question to you. Can you see the difference between coveting and the rest of of the other commandments that we find in the second tablet. What's the difference between murder, adultery, stealing, and lying from coveting? In the 10th commandment, God is speaking to the internal desires of man, not to external actions. This command is a prohibition from sinful affections. But Caleb, I went to Sunday school growing up and my teacher was awesome and they taught me that God didn't really care about the heart until we got to the New Testament. When we read the text, what does scripture say? What does God care about? Christopher Wright in his commentary on Deuteronomy, if scripture's not good enough, he says this, Deuteronomy is concerned... With characterizing a cultural code in which motives and desires, intentions and attitudes matter greatly. All the rhetoric, the didactic, the hortatory style, the urgent appeals, the glowing promises and the dire warnings are directed precisely to the heart and mind. The inner world of will and purpose There is nothing at all surprising, therefore, in the 10th commandment being posted to the same address. Kingsway, the wonderful promise is true. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's not in process. He's not adapting. He has always cared for the heart of his people, the heart which he created and put in man. But not only that, coveting and sinful desire, it's a little different from the second part, the second tablet, but it's related also to the first. The New Testament describes coveting as idolatry. So it's connected in this. When we break the tenth, we break the first. It all comes back. So here we are, we stand at the end, and we're being called in many ways to obey the beginning. How artistic is that? Thank you, Moses, for this. There's nothing dry. This is what a wonderful, alive text we read. So today's outline is this, three points. Coveting rejects the goodness of God. Contentment is found in the riches of Christ. And third, guard your affections, for in him alone is contentment found. So let's look at point one. Coveting rejects the goodness of God. We have to first start by defining. We have to get on the same page. What is coveting? How do we define coveting? Coveting is this. This is the good old Caleb Collins definition of it. You can make your own. Coveting is the wrongful desire for something that's not yours. That's it. That's it. The wrongful desire for something that's not yours, whether it be your neighbor's wife, his house, his ox, his servant, his donkey, um, or the more appropriate 2023 versions of all of that. There's no donkeys in my neighborhood. My neighbor doesn't have oxen. There's all sorts of ways that we can apply this text. And I one of the, one of the burdens I have as I'm reading this and and studying is like, do I give a list of things that we can covet? I, I think we know good and well church. If we looked at where we love the things that we love, we know. So throughout this sermon, the the 10th commandment, excuse me, is tied to desire. And the sinful desire is when we have affections and wants for something that's not ours. I'm going to be using the terms desire, want, affection, passions synonymously. So when I talk about that, I'm talking about wants, I'm talking about coveting, and I'm specifically talking about wrongful wanting and God is addressing our hearts and minds specifically in this command. Or as Wright puts it, the God who claimed the people's love also claims the rest of their affections and desires. I was, I was able to sit in the biblical counseling class this morning just for a minute. For those that are part, doesn't this just ring a bell? Wait a minute. We're, we're looking at the roots, not the fruits of this. What, what, what's going, I'm not looking to reform what's going on the outside I'm looking at the heart because God cares about the heart. God gave you a heart. He gave you passions. It's not to get rid of passions. It's not to get rid of... There's nothing wrong with having a donkey or having land. We're we're not Gnostic in the sense of the, the physical is bad and only the spiritual is good. The question is, where are our affections pulled to? James, in his letter, we looked at James 1 earlier this morning. If you're, if you're not able uh, to, to go or if you haven't considered Sunday class, you should go next week. It was such a joy diving into the text, studying exactly this. My sermon has been preached already uh, through the wonderful work that's going on in that class. But James says in chapter four, these words, that the fact our passions and desires are the root of our problem when he writes this, James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You want to know why churches divide, why there's disunity? You want to know why you sin? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you asked wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow, okay, so, so sin is the cause of desire, and and to have wrongful desires is to be an enemy of God. Okay, I got it. Ungodly want is the starting point for sin, but it's more than that. James says that we're enemies of God and friends with the world. I can connect the dots with wrongful desire leading to wrongful action, but but making ourselves enemies of God seems a little bit more far-reaching. Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And he defines covetousness, which is idolatry. So how does coveting make us an enemy of God? If we pull off the mask like Scooby-Doo episodes, what's behind coveting? If you pulled it off, it would be idolatry that's there. And if it wasn't for you and that dog, I would have got away with it our hearts are looking for joy and contentment and goodness our hearts as calvin says are idle factories that never turn off not even for holiday and when our sinful hearts find something to call good and to worship it we will be tempted with desire for it for young adults I feel for you particularly with this command. You you've moved from being under your household, your parents telling you what you should want and what you need to want, what's good to want, and you start looking to the left and right. You start looking back to your parents. Are they are they going to be? Pro- there, there's so many competing desires. You see people that are done with education and you're still pursuing it. Some people had their parents pay for it. Here you are working three jobs to get it done. Maybe you didn't even pursue education. where, Where do I sit in scale with that? You see some people are married and you are not. You see that some people have houses and you do not. You see that some people drive nice cars and you do not. You see someone else your age range has started a flourishing career. Their LinkedIn profile is awesome awesome. You don't even have LinkedIn. That guy or girl in church seems to be liked by so many more people than me. There's so many circumstances for you, young adults, that is fertile, well-mulched, well-soiled ground for sinful and godless desire to grow. Something that promises good an idol, and that idol will captivate your affections. The idol of success, or of being in front of the pack. How often is this the case? Of being known as the charismatic or likable person in your community group, of dating and of marriage. You know, in the back of your head, you, you got you. You're married a, a year before. You know, so-and-so or so and so or such and such. So you want you want to be the example in the church. For, for a good engagement, for a good marriage. You want, you want to be called and commended by various older. I, hey, I wish, I wish you were like so-and-so how he dated such-and-such and so-and-so on, on this and that. We, we have desires. Unchecked. We're susceptible. We're weak. And many times our idols and the desires that come along with the territory is tied to a form of self-worship. The grandest idol in all the world is worshiping yourself. If we want to satisfy, we, excuse me, we want to satisfy what's in our own self-interest to make a great name for ourselves. And we want others to recognize that in a myriad of ways. Just how awesome we are. I haven't met a person that hasn't struggled with this. We're susceptible to it, that we want people to worship us through power and authority and to see a blessed state of life that center of gravity, of course, is us. The idol of coveting of wrongful desire in many ways is to to ask for the manager Hey, you know regarding the state of your life, contest the bill. There's a better deal to be had. You're you're right. Your life is not good. You're right to be not content. So do something about it. Validate the idol. Make it true. Give it power. Life would be better if you were given more responsibility so that people could really see how great you are. I wish my friends called me first when they wanted to hang out. I wish my spouse would take lessons from so and so's spouse on X. If I just had a home, then I would be able to, or if I just had that promotion, if we just lived in that city and got away from this crap, my life would be better. Blessing would be found. Goodness could be attained. Think back on James 4. We want and do not have, so we murder. All, all the other sins in the second tablet are related to coveting. They, they don't come out of a vacuum. They, they start with want, every one of them. People don't just walk into scandalous sins. Richard Sibbs says, apostasies have small beginnings. You don't want a train wreck tomorrow, but what are you doing today? What, what little desire are you munching on what bag of Cheetos and desires are you eating? Oh, it's okay. It's just a couple. It's just a, it's just a couple. It's not, it's not a problem. Before you know it, sin has a noose around your neck and it's choking you out which brings us to the nature of sinful discontentment. Idolatry and the discontentment it breeds has many faces, but I think it's best tracked. If you want application today, the easiest one, oh, I don't want want to hear this. Um, The the best way to track it down, where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What do you talk about? That's the easiest way. You want to know where discontentment is in your life, which is the, the grandest fruit of covetousness, Where do you spend your time, your money, and what do you talk about? Because if your idol is what people think of you, you're going to see its testimony in the calendar and in the bank account and what you talk about. If your idol is an awesome career or you covet the power of an authoritative voice in your community, you can be encouraged by the testimony of the goodness of that idol in the church service of your time. And in the conversations that you get excited about. Just like how Ben came up and gave a testimony to the goodness of something that's God glorifying, the church, the bride of Christ, we, my friends, have church services all the time, every day, and we give testimony and we give the mic to our desires. Who are you giving the mic to? What is your heart testifying to? What makes you sad? in the ungodly sense of the term. I'm not saying like when your dog dies, don't cry. I'm saying in the sense of when something doesn't go right, and if you, if you peeled it back, if you Scooby-Doo pulled the mask off, you realize, wait a minute, that was an ungodly desire. I was putting what I should have been putting in Christ in this thing. It's a misplaced affection one of the greatest pitfalls, I think, particularly for us in the Christian community as it relates to coveting, are those that say, everybody can relate to this. It's like, okay, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. In church, I shouldn't say I want a Lamborghini. I get that. I'm never going to ask for that, you know. Or I, I know I'm not going to want a 10,000 square foot house. I know better than that. So what we do is the more respectable version of this, and we say we don't want. We don't want that. Well, I, I never wanted that anyways. It's like anti-coveting. We we can we might catch someone saying, "Well, I, I didn't I didn't even want that anyways." I, I you know what? I never wanted a lot of friends. I I never wanted a house. I don't really want an awesome career with a great paycheck. I would rather be you know this or that. Well, college wasn't really my thing anyways. I never really wanted. I, I don't. I, I would never. I would never get a dog. Church, it's because you're a cat person. But, the, the desire is still there. You're, you're, you're still wanting something. You're just wanting something different. A respectable version of a ungodly desire. Each one of these scenarios is, is not someone who lacks desire, but rather has a different desire, a competing desire, which gives you more currency in the community that it, you know, it's like, I, we use the dollar here, so I'm, I'm going to use the dollar. I'm not going to talk about Lamborghinis. I'm going to talk about, you know, I don't want popularity or, or this or that, or you, you name it. You, you, you know it. It's there. We can all think of it. And this is why attempting to address, this is, this is, the, other, this is, this is the stickiness of it. We're, we're, there's, we have virtues and we have vices. So the covetousness fruits itself in the vice of discontentment. A virtue that we have as Christians, one that we pursue, I, I, I talk about this often because it, it boggles me. The virtue of humility. It, like when you, when you try to grab that thing, when you try to define it, when you say you have it, you lost it. So when, when you're over here and you say, well, I don't, I don't want that. Well, guess what? You just jumped into another pool. You jumped from the, fire, the, the, the pan to the fire. That, and, and that's the stickiness of sin. When we strive to work, when we strive to do rather than live by faith, we, we're, all we're doing is trading one side of the fence for the other. One side of the fence for the other because we're just fighting discontentment and wrongful desires with other competing desires that are sinful. When we believe the lie, idolatry sells us, and we pursue this sinful desire in what's not ours. The, the way to think of this contentment and covetousness, and this is another reason why I'm going to try to clear the fog of war for us, because it's, I, I know there's probably me included. I'm right, I'm right there with you. I'd be sitting in front row, a lot of us are going, I'm pretty good on want. I think, I think I'm good. I'm happy. Check. I get it. Need to be looking out, making sure that I'm not wanting uh, other people's oxen and donkeys. Um, I'll watch out. But the thing is, here's an illustration. There's a fire in front of us. And if you're a sick person who can't keep your body temperature up, you need external heat to warm you. You need medicine to make you Well, and oftentimes this is how sneaky our desires are the 10th commandment goes to the whole bible it goes to everything our desires are everything and so what we can do is we're sick in our desires but we're warmed by the things that we want we meet our desires we covet and we get that it shows fruits in actions and we're warm and we go i'm warm i'm content i'm good But the reality is, is that if we removed your idols, we'd find a sick heart with with wrong, ungodly desires. And the good news of the gospel is we are all sick in our hearts. And Jesus Christ came to give us a new heart with new desires so that you don't have to be sick and warmed by silly, stinking fires, whatever campsite you're in. You can be warmed by the love of God through his spirit that abides in your heart and transformed those desires. So the question is, what fires are you sitting by? Where where are you tempted to find medicine? Is it in the Lord or is it in those things that are promising the good life? Along with coveting just outside of like regular everyday stuff, I want to challenge you this too. This is one of the, one of the lessons that were, was impressed by, onto me by uh, C.J. Mahaney in Louisville. His one advice for churches is to prepare for suffering. And just for young adults that I would have a concern at this age range, these 10 years, people are running at different paces and there's all kinds of coveting that could happen. Brothers and sisters, when we encounter suffering, ooh, that is another fertile ground for ungodly desires, of being angry at the Lord, of trying to find goodness in places where it should not. When we suffer, this season's gonna come. And it's gonna look different for every person and it might be longer. It might have more depth to it. It gets trickier every time you go into that room. But we're gonna be tempted like Eve in the garden with the snake. God's not good goodness isn't found here in this garden. He said, don't go to that tree, try going for it. I want to encourage you, as it should be obvious through what I'm inferring, that happiness is not found in creation, but the creator. It's not found from people appreciating you more as a person or you being understood or being listened to, or having your identity and whatever that looks like being affirmed. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a wonderful little Puritan paperback called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and he said this regarding our pursuit against sinful discontentment in light of Christian contentment when he writes this, the contentment of a man or woman who is rightly content does not come so much from outward arguments or from any outward help as from the disposition of their own hearts." here's the trick. We don't solve one fire with another fire. That's not the answer. We're not to quote, again, Matthew from the biblical counseling class. My my job is not to just give you behavioral, you know, reform. Hey, have you tried this? Have you read this person's book? I got a lot of warmth here. No, the answer is always the same, which is our joy as Christian counselors and as Christians, as we disciple, How is Jesus glorious in this moment in your circumstance? So a change of our circumstances, possessions, our state does not give us the good life. It doesn't give us blessedness. So where is blessedness to be found? If not in a change of circumstances, where are we to find the good life? Point two, contentment is found in the riches of Christ. Christian Christian contentment is a contentment, as Burroughs says, of the inner man. We don't want to be a sick man by a fire. We want to be a healthy person who can regulate their own body temperature, if you will, in good health. And how we do that is we abide in Christ. We remind ourselves and feast on the gospel. One of the lies that coveting displays on a grand level is that you're not in a safe place. You're not in a good place. The reason why you need that ox is because you need someone to plow the field so that you can get food on the table so that your family can eat. But, church, we combat this with the true and robust view of who God is and what He has done. We need the grace of God and a divine perspective to recalibrate life. So, Christian, this is the good news. This is the good news for you when you fear that God is not providing everything that you need. When we're scared because we believe that we lack what we need, and how that comes to fruition is anxiety. Anybody Anybody prone to that? When we fear that, uh, that, that we're not in a safe place, that we're not good, it births anxiety. But that comes, that comes from that fear, which comes from a distrust that we have what we have and a sinful desire for something we don't have. Anxiety in many ways is a child of sinful discontentment, which is a child of covetousness, which is just our idols in place of God. Hear Hear these encouraging words Matthew 6 regarding our anxieties and our discontentments in this world. How do we fight these warm fires? How do I say no to that? It's my desire, divine perspective. And this is the divine perspective that I hope encourages you. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Answer, yes. And which of you is and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spend. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. It all comes back to faith, a, a simple trust and dependence on God in Christ. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For The Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. So to understand the audacity of desiring what we don't have is to first recognize what we do have and to see the sovereignty of God. But church, I hope hope you see the goodness of God from that text. It's not just that he's sovereign. He's good. And furthermore, God loves his people. He loves providing for you. He is your heavenly father. If he does that for the lilies and for the grass and for the sparrows, who he will not commune in a special love and all of eternity, how much more will he do that with his image-bearing creation? When we have a divine perspective that is informed by total sovereignty of God and of his goodness over all creation, which he governs, and of his fatherly care for his people, that perspective informs the fire. It informs the desires that we have in life. But the good news doesn't even stop there. We haven't really even gotten to the best news of it. If God is God, he's truly sovereign, he's wise. He's providing and governing for all created order perfectly. Where does he say goodness is chiefly found? Is it in God providing you food and a barn and an ox and a kitchen table? In Christ alone. God made a glorious display of his power, his wisdom, and his goodness, and his love through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Why coveting and ungodly wants are the antithesis to everything the church stands for is because it makes a mockery of what God has powerfully done in Jesus. We devalue God through the testimonies of the other things that we love, so let me challenge your gaze and your affection this morning. This is how we are to look at Christ. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Kingsway, I pray this is our testimony. I pray that this is our witness to a watching world. You can have everything else. I just want Jesus. I want the cross. Covetousness bears false witness to the real wants of your heart, and which has been happily, happily, and fully provided. In the finished work of Jesus Christ. You needed a divine redeemer, a divine savior, and an eternal hope. And in the good news that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again, all of your spiritual wants has been met and transformed. You transformed your material wants and your affections in light of that. Not a hatred of the physical world, again but an appropriate ordering of what is most important. There is truly nothing as Christians that we need more than Jesus Christ. That's not, it's not a cliche. It's the truth. That's the gospel. The gospel is that I once was defined by wanting everything, everything other than what I truly needed. And God in his mercy, but also church because of his desire for you desired his church and provided for his church every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through the work of Jesus Christ and my desires from been changed from hatred of god to love of god hatred of neighbor to love of neighbor i have a love for the things that are of god and testify to the glories of his name not mine that's the gospel in the 10th commandment, so that with the psalmist, we can say this, my flesh, my heart may feel, I might not have a fire, but God is my strength. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What want could we possibly have that competes so, what's the point of today's sermon? What's the one thing I want you to take away today? It's this point three guard your affections for Jesus, for in him alone is contentment found. Jeremiah Burroughs defines Christian contentment as this Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And I add, I don't know if it's up there, because of the gospel, because of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, just because you are a Christian and just because you have contentment does not mean that you have Christian contentment. I'm not, this ain't, I ain't a prophet, I'm not playing go fish. I'm just just saying what the numbers say. I know there are people here, including myself, that can trick and have our hearts deceive us that we have true Christian contentment. And what we're doing is we're holding on to Jesus, but with the other hand, we're warming ourselves by some kind of fire, some kind of desire, something else that's there. Guard the treasure in the field. Treasure Jesus Christ so much better than anything else. It's worth selling everything else for. So if Christ is the most important thing, if he is that treasure in the field, it is incumbent on us to guard it and to pray for God's grace to serve it. I'm going to take it a step further. It's not just guarding. We're not just a guard. It's worship, that every every again just how all sin starts with sinful desires that sinful desire is idolatry conversely on the other side all godliness starts from a godly desire which starts from a proper love and affection for god and so it follows that we worship god by loving him by loving the things that he loves and having our desires shaped and molded. We love godliness. There, there needs to be fruits. But again, we care about the roots. And those roots, how, how do you get good roots? Be in awe of God in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. I don't. It's not a math problem of just try it again until you get it right. The idea is that, hey, there's this, you can enjoy this, or you can enjoy something better. Another way that I could say that, I'll pass that, to be happy in Christ and to possess Christian contentment is Christian worship. That's really the point. That's really the point. And and Burroughs helps us again when he says, certainly our contentment does not consist in getting the things that we desire. This, oof, but in God fashioning our spirits to our conditions. What what Burroughs is getting at here is that that idea of the fire, that when we're satisfied in Christ, we're not looking to God as a vending machine. So in community group, and we say, I just wish that I had this. Can we pray that I have this? Are we praying for fires or are we beholding God? God's saying that even here, I'm with you. Even in the loss of a child whom you wanted dearly, I, the Lord, your God, is with you. Even in the midst of a health scare and you're distraught at the thought of potentially losing your spouse, Christian, God is testifying to his own name and goodness by saying that even there, even there the gospel roars. That Christ is king. That God's wisdom, goodness, and love abound even in the darkest of circumstances, because it's not our circumstances we warm ourselves by. It is Christ and Christ alone. Two ways that we can guard our affections is first to be just a student, a student of true happiness. And I think you know what I mean by that now. True happiness is the gospel. Never give up on this. Be a student of where the good life is, Jesus Christ Never settle for a day in your week where you go, "You know what? I'll go to that field tomorrow. That was so great yesterday. I'm living off that quiet time. It'll be great for the rest of the week. Never stop. Never turn the light off in your study, in your study, because Christ is glorious. You know, one of the things about our church it, we're not afraid of spiritual gifts at Kingsway. So encouraged this morning by the word that we heard. But the chief part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit isn't to make miraculous gifts. It's this, to make Christ glorious. And so one of the ways that we can be a student of happiness is to to be on our knees and to pray and to ask. When we ask for the Holy Spirit to move, that we ask him for what he wants to do most, which is to make Jesus's name heavy and worthy and glorious and beautiful. May we be a church that loves to be happy in Jesus. The second way that we can guard is to value that blessedness that we have in Christ. What the gospel has given us, this goes back to the evangelism class, Romans 3, that we have been declared righteous, that God's wrath has been appeased, and that we have been freed from sin and death. That is, it's free from theft, it's not gonna rust, it's right as rain, it's money in the bank. That's the gospel that we enjoy. How many times do we warm ourselves up next to a fire and that fire goes out? Want to know why? Because idols always overpromise and under-deliver. And then we go over to another fire. We start warming ourselves over there. You know the fire that never goes out? <laughs> the gospel. That's the, what, what's the one thing you get to take into heaven? None of your possessions. You get Jesus, which is Awesome. <laughs> That's the best news in all the world. And when we understand the value of the gospel that we hold, Burroughs says this, contentment delivers us from an abundance of temptations. Why is that? Why is it that true Christian contentment protects us from temptation? Because we have a divine perspective of what is truly valuable. And that's, that's, that's always been the testimony of the church. We value things that are of God and not the world. The world calls it foolish. We know because God gave it to us what is good. So when God gives us Jesus, we are that healthy person who doesn't need medicine or a fire. God has settled our soul. He's given us health. He's given us the good life. He's opened up, opened up our eyes to the treasure in the field. So if we treasure Christ and abide in a happy state that he's given us in the cross, I have no problem echoing what Augustine said to us as our final application. Love God, Kingsway, and do whatever you want. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our portion and strength. There is no greater good than to know you. And Father, you we would ask that you would open our eyes and remove the callous from our hearts to see you and to find happiness in you. Make make us a happy people in you, Lord. We never tire of praying this, Lord, because we never tire of straying away. We need you. We need your grace and love. Change our affections, Lord, for you. And for those who do not know you, Lord, would you change their affections this morning? Work in them, to see the treasure in the field. Holy Spirit, would you make Christ glorious, in Jesus' name, amen.